Well, today will be, Lord willing, the last time we actually go through the Minor Prophets in any major sense with me. I'm going to bring this whole series to a close. If you didn't notice the last time I preached just before Christmas, uh, the goal, that was more of a topical sermon, and today will be much the same and, and kind of the same light with that. Now, my hope, though, is that as we've been going through all the Minor Prophets, you've seen really two basic themes in each one of them, and that is the themes of judgment and salvation. Now, these twin promises or themes, if you will, are incredibly important simply because how you understand them, especially as they relate to the nation of Israel and end times, will simply uh, affect how you view major portions of the scriptures. So what I want to do today is uh, give you a little bit more depth or understanding to what the prophets longed to see, which was in a nutshell, again, that they, they desired to see the day of Christ when he would be Uh, born as an infant, that he would live and die on the cross, that he'd be raised again. And yet, particularly as we look at it today, that he was going towards the end of all things uh, because everything is wrapped up in the hope of his second coming, the restoration of all things. So again, I want to draw that reality a bit more clearly today. And so we're going to be spending some time in the book of Zechariah, like I said. But also, if you are one who looks at the notes in the app, um, and if you don't, this is my cheap plug to look at it and do it. But I've actually provided a full separate handout that's about seven pages of just plain scripture references. You'll see I've made some markings on them, some highlights in them. And the purpose for that is simply that you can also follow along in that today if you want or refer back to it on your own time. The idea, though, is that in that handout, you'll see that there are four respective headings. And each of these headings are things that I'm going to bring up today, especially with all those scripture references. Uh, The reason I'm bringing out these four different aspects or headings, if you will, is that they make up what I would call the hope of Israel. And so there are four key markers or aspects of this hope of Israel that I plan to touch on today with you all, and that they would emerge as we simply unfold the text. So again, I'd encourage you to either open that or refer back to it upon your own leisure. My hope, though, is that as we go through this today, and as you consider what we've learned as a whole through the prophets, that you'll see that all of these events, all of these things, and especially what I call the hope of Israel, is all interrelated, meaning that these are actual events that have to happen in space and time before the end of the age or before the redemption of all things. Now, the simple reason I want to show you this is that behind all of that, there is this greater reality at play. Just as Christ's first advent folds into his second coming, right, the hope of his second coming, the hope of Israel folds into the hope of all the world, and particularly the hope that we have in God's eternal kingdom. You heard John just mention this in communion. And this is all building around the idea that sin, Satan, death are no more, and the reason for this is simply because Christ has returned but ushered in the end of the age where we will live in perfect unity and fellowship with our creator. And so my argument is basically that if you take the first advent of Christ literally, you ought to then take the second coming of Christ literally. And the reason for this is bound up simply in not only studying the scriptures consistently, but that these events, again, happen in such rapid succession in terms of where they are laid out in scripture that it's difficult to simply spiritualize one and then make one literal. My point is, if you're going to be consistent, you ought to then read these the same way. So with that brief introduction, we're going to look at the first aspect of the hope of Israel today, and that is called the day of the Lord. 
Now, the day of the Lord is a term that pops up all throughout the prophets, and in virtually every instance, beloved, it is referring to final judgment. We also see this called the day of visitation in different books of the Old Testament, or the day of wrath, if you will. And this is a time that we know God kicks off this inevitable series of events where all things are culminating in judgment because it's the end of the age. Now, for the unbeliever, this is a terrible time of wrath, isn't it? Amos calls this a day of gloom. He says there's no brightness in it, and that's in Amos chapter 5. The prophet Joel speaks of this in chapters 1, 2, and even 3 as this incredible day of destruction from the hand of the Almighty. He says all the people of the earth will actually tremble in fear on this day. The sun is turned to darkness. The moon is turned to blood. And he says it is a great and awesome day of the Lord. He also depicts this as a day where many multitudes are gathered in what he calls the Valley of Decision, and that's in Joel chapter 3, verse 14. Now, many take this to be an evangelistic passage, but the reality is it's not talking about some final choice people get to somehow then follow Christ then, as if this mass group of people are finally given this uh, final chance at salvation, if you will. The reality is that even here, Joel speaks of final judgment. And so the decision being made is that of the Lord's. He is the one that is rendering their fate, if you will. Ezekiel talks about this same day being a day of clouds, a time of doom for all the nations. And so it's not just one people group or one nation. Obadiah also speaks of this being a time that the Lord comes to judge every single nation. And that's in Obadiah 1.15. And so in every aspect, what we're seeing is that over and again, this is a description of horrible judgment, but it's not just contained to Jerusalem or one area, but the entire earth. It's the end of the age, if you will. And this is where God finally makes good on his promises to take out vengeance on the evildoer. And indeed, it is a day of great terror for the wicked. When we come to the New Testament, we also know this to be a time that the scriptures refer to as a day when God separates the sheep from the goats or the wheat from the tares, or as you might just simply put it, the believer from the unbeliever. It is a day that comes like a thief in the night, meaning that no one will see it coming. The heavens pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. In other words, destruction. Over and again, the reality being depicted for the unbeliever during this time, again, is that this is an incredibly harsh day of wrath and judgment. It is horrific. It is terrible. It is every word that you can think of that is in the negative sense where it is on your shoulders as an unbeliever. From the Psalms to the prophets to the gospels to the epistles to the book of Revelation, every single one of them speak of this reality we call the day of wrath. And it says that if you are not in Christ, that this wrath falls on you. We find a continual warning of this day to come. God on that day pours out judgment after judgment after judgment and millions upon millions of people die. I mean, it is just this agonizing brutal time of judgment for the unbeliever. And so we are left to conclude, obviously, from that, that this day of the Lord is obviously not a day of hope for them, is it? For the faithful, especially the faithful Israelite or the faithful Gentiles that God would call to be his people, though, the prophets actually depict this as a day of great hope. And doesn't that just mess with your sensibilities a little bit? Because you don't think of it that way, do you? 
But we talk about this all the time when we talk about the reality of what the gospel has accomplished. We've not been simply saved from our sins. We have been promised that on that great day of wrath, we will actually be spared from the wrath of God. And, uh, beloved, is that not good news? Now think of how terrifying these descriptions are, right? There's just blinding peals of lightning. There's crashing sounds of thunder. The Lord is standing on his mountain. The earth rips open and magma is pouring out. There's fire and brimstone and everything that you can think of apocalyptically where this world is ending because judgment is happening. And God says that on that time, right, the water's not drinkable for anybody. All sorts of plagues are being unleashed. And yet for you, if you are in Christ, none of that is reserved for you. We know that even after all of that takes place, there's this greater day of wrath and judgment, right? God raises the dead and the living, and he either consigns them or appoints them to eternal death or eternal life. And once again, if you are in Christ, you do not suffer under God's eternal wrath. Is that not a thing of hope? Or think of the darkest days you've ever had in your life. Knowing that is enough to at least lift you out of that at some sense, right? Do you not just feel a burning sense of gratitude to God when you're, when you're reading through the scriptures and you see that all that judgment does not belong for me because that was poured out on Christ, right? Isn't it a great thing to hear that we will not enter his wrath, but we will enter into his what? His rest, right? In one sense, the hope of the Israelite on this day of judgment or this day of wrath is just that, they have the hope of being passed over, just like during the Exodus, at least if they're in Christ. And yet there's also an aspect to this day of judgment or the day of the Lord that is to come that we simply do not like to think about. The reason for that is because we know somebody is the object of God's wrath, meaning it's not just people out there, it's people that we know. It's family members, it's friends, it's sons and daughters, wives, It's real flesh and blood people we know. They are caught up in wrath on this day. And the way that the prophets, again, depict this is it's it's not just a praiseworthy and good and true thing for the sake of God's holiness, but that it's actually a thing of great hope for the believer. Again, there's there's an aspect where we are to find hope in that. And that just betrays every bit of thinking for us, doesn't it? Well, the reason for all of that is that on on that final day, beloved, God promises to vanquish every enemy. And the three greatest enemies we know of sin, Satan, and death are all wrapped up in that. But that's what that all means. It's not just this light and airy thing where we get the pleasantries of all of it, but that evil is done away with for good. But nobody would have understood this more than the faithful Jew. Nobody would have understood that better than them. And the reason for that is simply that if you think about it, all throughout their history, what has Israel dealt with? They have not only dealt with corruption and destruction by the hands of their own countrymen, right? They have people that are dishonestly cheating the scales. They're abusing and disobeying the law in every regard. They are tearing their own countrymen limb from limb and stealing their cloaks when they're in the most destitute of positions. So they see all that. But then the country is judged as a result of their wickedness by the hand of men like the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they're just as wicked as everybody else, right? We've seen this from any other nation in the Old Testament, whether it's going to be the Edomites or the Canaanites or the Jebusites or any other ites, if you will. 
there's always been this threat against Israel and the threat against God's promises. Well, the hope for the faithful Israelite on, on this final great day is that it is a day in which God brilliantly showcases his promise to bless those who bless Israel and to curse those who curse Israel. Meaning it is the final time in which that judgment is rendered. In reality, it is the culmination of this promise, again, because it is final judgment. No more will Israel be under the threat of extinction. No more will God's people suffer persecution. No more will Israel experience the harshness of judgment for her exile and sin. And because when that day of the Lord finally actually comes, things will be like they have never been before. From that day forward, all these things that are kicked off into motion will not ever be able to be pulled back simply because it's bringing about the end of this age. And beloved, this is a good thing because of what it actually accomplishes. Now, that day, that is the day of wrath or the day of the Lord, folds into the second hope of Israel, which is their own salvation. And this is where, if you would turn with me to Zechariah 12, you'll start to see this in the text here. Again, I invite you to go back and and check all of my references that I've given you, because they're all in that handout. It should be helpful to you. Uh, A little bit of comments on Zechariah 12 through 14, though, just by way of introduction. All of it is one unit of prophecy. It's dealing with these final days of judgment and, and restoration or salvation. But when we come to chapter 12, what the prophet unfolds for us is really the same reality we've just talked about, where there is this day of the Lord, it has come, and then judgment is starting to be carried out upon all the nations. And so in light of all of that, there are still things that must take place during this time that we're going to take a brief look at. But the reason for that is that because it's all hastening towards this last and final great day. The nations here are not being punished simply because they have sinned and rejected God. That's undoubtedly part of it. Don't mistake me. But they are being judged here specifically because they have set themselves against Israel And again, all the way back in Deuteronomy 28, God says, I will bless those who bless Israel, and I will curse those who curse Israel. So before the nations are gathered to go to war, one of the things that actually must happen is that Israel has to be restored. They have to be regathered and repossess the promised land. And we've talked about that in a little bit of detail as I've talked about some of the the ingathering texts that are brought out in the Minor Prophets. Now, Zechariah doesn't allude to that here. He already has all this in mind because he's already talked about it in chapter 10. We also saw within the book of Amos, again, one of the other minor prophets that I treated extensively, uh, that the prophets tell us that God's going to restore the captivity of his own people, Israel, and he will plant them in their land. And then what he says of that is that they will never again be rooted out. Now, what's unique to the book of Zechariah here is that it's a post-exilic book. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's okay. All that means is simply that this was written after Israel already returned to the land from Babylon. And so it's after their first exile. They've already returned to the land. And so everything that's being said in here is talking about this future aspect of Israel. So what he talks about in Zechariah 10 uh, is all in light of this future regathering. 12, 13, and 14 then are also in light of this future event. Amos obviously speaks to the same thing because he says they will never again be rooted out. Now, if you know your history, there have been plenty of times that Israel has been taken out of the land since the Old Testament, hasn't there? 
I mean, that's not even a question in our minds. Things are different here, though, because in both instances, and and you're going to see this, he's speaking about salvation, and not just in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense. When we get to Zechariah 12, all of this is in mind already. The prophet starts to speak of this day coming. Again, that is the day of the Lord or the day of wrath. And here's where I want you to really notice how often he's bringing out this little phrase. You may even want to underline it as you're starting to see it. It says, in that day. So the first time it pops up, if you look down again, Zechariah 12, verse 3, he says, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. Then notice what he says here. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. So not just Assyria or Babylon or the Persians or any one nation, but all the nations of the earth. And he says again in verse four, in that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah. Then see again in verse six, in that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among a piece of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves, so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell in their own sites in Jerusalem. Again in verse 8, in that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Again in verse 9, in that day I will set about to destroy how many nations? All the nations that come against Jerusalem. There's this constant referral to that day. And again, it's all talking about this day of the Lord or the day of wrath. And and notice what he's just said about this day, though. He says, all the nations, again, not just one or two or three or four, but all the nations of the earth will come to war against Jerusalem. And this is the same war that's in mind in Revelation 16 called the Battle of Armageddon. And you'll see this again shortly in verses 10 and 11 here. But notice first what God actually does for his people. Right? So God promises he's going to preserve Israel. He's going to save them from being slaughtered by all the nations. But specifically, what is Israel going to be? Israel, this weak little nation, is just going to tear them apart, right? So God actually sets out to destroy these nations through the hands of the Israelites. But here's where it actually gets really, really interesting. If you look down with me at Zechariah 12.10, notice what the prophet writes here. Again, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Why? So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Again, here's that phrase. In that day, there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimen in the plain of Megiddo, Megiddo is another word for the Valley of Armageddon, by the way. But notice how he says in verse 10, what does he say comes upon them? This this spirit of grace and of supplication. But why? So they will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. Do you notice what he just did there? He switched between first and third person, didn't he? So he says, God is speaking here. He says, they will look upon me whom they have pierced, right? So it's Christ. And then he says, they will mourn for him, speaking of Christ again. 
And so you have Christ speaking in the beginning because he's the one whom they've pierced, right? They pierced him through by their sins, but then he switches back to the father speaking about this one whom they have pierced. And what Zechariah is alluding to here in really a clever way is the same thing that Isaiah spoke of in chapter 53, right? It's a suffering servant motif again. Israel looks upon this Christ who is God himself, and they recognize that they've been the cause of his sufferings, right? They've pierced him through. And what gets produced from this is a bitter grief that overcomes them. Now, the reference to them mourning like the head of Drimmon in the plain of Megiddo, it's speaking to this time when Jerusalem wept over the death of their last good king, Josiah. And so here they weep bitterly over this fact that they have pierced through the Son of God. Why? Because they finally recognize the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. Now, we know Jesus quotes this passage in the New Testament. But what happens here is that they're going to confess their sins, they're going to repent, they're going to finally come to embrace their Messiah, which is what we see in Zechariah 13.1. Forgive me, I read ahead a little bit. So if that didn't make any sense, it's simply because of that. In 13.1, though, I want you to look down once again. Notice he continues to say, in that day. So he says, in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this is incredibly important. For what reason? Or for what? For sin and impurity. It will come about, again, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. So no idols. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirits from the land. So all this whole section is talking about this reality that Israel finally mourns over piercing their Messiah through, but then pay attention to what actually happens. God opens a fountain, and and the description being used here is that this never-ending stream of water, if you will, it's just continual for the house of David in particular, but for what? Sin and impurity. And so he, he makes a way for forgiveness. There's genuine repentance and faith, though, that actually comes of this, which is just mind-blowing. The, the result is that all idolatry, all false prophets, and even the unclean spirits are removed from the land. Now, we started to see that when Christ entered into the world, but let me ask you, was it all? No. What's being depicted here, though, is this is complete spiritual and even physical renewal in Israel, in a sense. The people will not simply mourn because they pierced their Messiah through. They're actually going to turn away from their sins, so much so that The text says in verses three through six that they're going to be ashamed if they have visions and prophecies or their parents are going to pick up stones to just kill them, right? Well, then in verse seven, look what it says. He picks up again on this theme of the suffering servant. Notice what it says. God himself will strike the shepherd so that the sheep may be scattered. And then there's this curious little phrase that comes up here. He will turn his hand against the little ones. And here's where, obviously, I read ahead, where you can see Jesus quotes this passage in the New Testament, right? He talks about this just before his death. He talks about it being the scattering of his disciples, Uh, but there's more going on in the text here. And the reason for that is simply because of that second phrase. Again, he says, he will turn his hand against the little ones. Now, there's much conjecture on what this means, but I believe the most faithful rendering of the text is simply that 
God is saying he's going to actively oppress every future generation of the Israelites from this time forward. And all of this is purposed to refine them, to produce this salvation that he refers to here. Now continue to look with me at verses 8 through 9. Again, hopefully you'll at least see this is drawn out of the text. Notice first in verse 8 that there's two-thirds of the land that will be cut off and perish, but there will be one-third left. And it is that final third that Zechariah says here, the Lord will bring through the fire to purify them as one purifies silver and gold. And what's the result of this? They will call upon his name and he will answer them. And he will say, they are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. Now keep in mind, again, the context of everything you've been hearing thus far is on the day of the Lord, right? It's referring to this day of the Lord. It's this time of final judgment. Everything that's happening up to this point then is simply meant to crush Israel, to crush them, to afflict them. The nations that are coming to war against them, the judgments that are being poured out on the earth, all of these things, even God's hand of affliction upon them to drive them back to himself, to cause them to repent, is designed, beloved, to crush them. The reason for this is because they must be broken of their stubbornness, their rebellion. They, they have to actually see their sin for what it is, in other words. They have to turn in repentance and faith to the one whom they've pierced. And we know this is Christ. But if you think about it, is this not one of the most beautiful portrayals of how God often works to call his people home? To bring salvation. Now, many of you have a similar story to this, don't you? Right? I do. God was pleased to crush me. God was pleased to bring you or I to rock bottom. We had to be afflicted and crushed and stomped out of our rebellion because we were incredibly stiff-necked. But it was out of that darkness, it was out of that despair that God actually revealed himself through the person of Christ for who he is and that he brought you to light, that you confessed faith and hope in the one and only Jesus Christ. Well, that's the same thing being designed for Israel here. It's the same thing Paul depicts in Romans 11. He talks about Israel being hardened, another way of saying God sent or set his hand against them, if you will. Right? He says also in Romans 11 that he's, he's going to lift this spirit of stupor from them at some point. Why? But that the Israelites would actually see, that they would actually hear and believe. But not just in some general vague deity, in the person of Jesus Christ, whom they have pierced. Now, if you would look with me at Zechariah 14, and we're going to see that he pulls this out even here, too. He picks up on this theme of Israel's salvation, but also in this sense, it's not just a, a spiritual work that's happening. It's God's actually acting uh, as a physical deliverer or savior of his people. And what's positively awesome, and I do mean awesome here, and actually frightening all at the same time, is that it's God himself in human flesh coming to do this. And so you have this period, Israel is saved, right? They're saved from the wrath of God. They're brought to faith in this one whom they have pierced. They will mourn over this. They will repent. And then Christ returns to the Mount of Olives. He delivers them from their enemies here. Again, this is all in Zechariah 14. 
So look with me at verse one. Notice what the prophet writes. He says, behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. And then he continues in verse two. He says, all of the nations are coming to war against Jerusalem. And then yet see what actually comes of it. The city will be captured. The houses are plundered. The women are raped. And half of the city is exiled. Now, that doesn't exactly sound like deliverance, does it? That doesn't exactly sound like dividing up the spoils that were just promised to them, the ones that were taken from them, right? But now look at verse 3. We see God takes on the role of this divine warrior who fights for his people. And this is what the day of the Lord has actually been building up to all along, which is just simply the return of the king. Again, notice the temporal word the time words, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Again, here's that phrase. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. This is the only time in the Old Testament, by the way, that this is referred to, this Mount of Olives. But notice it's Christ's actual physical presence or visitation on earth that is all tied to this great and glorious day called this Day of Wrath. This is also foretold of in Acts 1.11. The angels tell the disciples that Christ is going to return in the exact same spot he went up from. Right? Where, where did he ascend but the Mount of Olives? So what he's saying in Acts is that just as the Lord left, he will return. And that's what we see here. Now again, remember up to this point, this is all referring again to this day of the Lord that is to come. And during that time, God has been pouring out judgment after judgment after judgment, and millions upon millions of people are dying. And we get into great detail about this in the book of Revelation, don't we? But this is a little bit different in this time because this is when Christ actually returns in bodily form in all his blazing fury. He's no mere babe in swaddling cloth when he returns. He comes with vengeance in his eyes, beloved. He has, as he returns, he actually splits the mountain in two under the sheer weight of his glory and his presence. And he creates this massive valley in between the peaks that Israel is going to flee to for safety, which is what verse five says. But then look at the end of verse 5 here. Notice how he says, it is then, that is, when they flee to this valley created at the Mount of Olives, that the Lord will come with all his holy ones with him. Now, we don't get a depiction of all the details of that here, but this is Revelation 19 in a nutshell. The heavens are opened. Christ descends on a white horse. He is called faithful and true. The Apostle John simply describes him just with this awesome, vivid imagery. He has eyes that are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And all these things are describing not only his right and authority and power to judge and make war, but his actual desire to do that. And then it says his robe is dipped in blood. That's not the cutesy little Jesus you see in the manger, is it? All the armies of heaven come with him as he strikes down the nations to rule them with a rod of iron. 
Well, Christ comes with this kind of awesome display of power and authority, and I mean awesome. We throw that word around a lot, don't we? But on that day, people will truly know the meaning of the word awesome. Everyone that comes to war with Israel and with the king is just simply killed on the spot. And then what does it say? But that the birds of the air feast on their flesh. It's just this brutal, brutal depiction of slaughter of the peoples who simply reject and rebel against Christ. But for people that have been continually stomped into the ground by the nations, this is a thing of incredible hope. Again, this is all part of the hope of Israel that Zechariah is trying to build and tease out here. We'll see more dimensions to this shortly, but their hope is that God will not simply save their people from their sins, but that he will ultimately save them from their enemies. That God will save them to the uttermost on that great and final day. And so what we see here is God strikes the Israelites to the heart, right? He, he convicts them of their sins, but he also brings the nations against them. And he does it all for the purpose of refining them like fire so that on the day when he returns, they will actually be a people of repentance and faith in their Messiah. You know, God will bring them from salvation, from the wrath of God itself, but then he will give them a new heart. They will not turn from the Lord. And yet out of that, he provides a salvation from their enemies. But again, and this is in, in a final sense. I think of what we've seen through the minor prophets. Again, if you still think it, I'm talking about simply just this people group that make up the nation and not the true Israelite, you're missing the point. Time and again, the true Israelite is afflicted by the people, his own countrymen, right? Time and again, this happens. But at the same time, he still has to suffer under the same judgment that everybody else is suffering under. But in this time to come, God's salvation of Israel ensures that the people of Israel, that is the people that are actually spared, that final third, if you will, are those who are unified in repentance and faith in their Messiah, but also that their Messiah will go to war for them. He will protect them from every single foe. Again, these are marks of a final salvation. No more will the Israelite have to deal with any of that. The true Israelite desired for his brothers and sisters to love the Lord their God, to love their fellow Israelite, but also they wanted safety. They wanted to dwell with God. Is that not, in some sense, the same exact thing you want? In other words, the hope of Israel was not merely that this day of the Lord would come, that everything would end in fire, but that there would be this actual deliverance of the people from their sins, but also from those who despised them and wanted to just wipe them off the map. But more than this, it was in the promise of God that God would actually dwell with them or tabernacle with them, not just for a short period of time of 30 plus years, but forever. Beloved, they knew all the promises that were given, that God said, I will dwell in your midst forevermore. They knew that once he would come again, that he would not go back up. And so what flows from their spiritual and physical deliverance or salvation is this reality, where God comes to tabernacle with the people, what we call the millennial kingdom. That is the third aspect of the hope of Israel. Now, when the millennial kingdom is brought into being, there's still several things that have to take place, but 
What I want to do is just draw out some passages that speak to what this actually looks like, at least according to the prophets. Now, we we talked about this uh, roughly a month ago now, that the Davidic throne would be reestablished, right? Christ himself would be seated on it. Uh, Amos 9.11 speaks to this reality. He says, again, in that day, God will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Again, he's referring to this renewal of the Davidic throne. Now, if you remember, we also learned from Isaiah 9 that who sits on the throne of David, but Christ himself, right? He will sit on it. He will uphold perfect justice and righteousness, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. No end to it, no stalling of it. During this time, the minor prophets tell us that the nations are actually going to come and flock to Jerusalem and worship the king. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 tells us the people will stream to this place. And the imagery he uses here is like this never-ending river just flowing from one person to the next of people ad nauseum into Jerusalem, into the mountain, where they want to learn God's ways, where they want to walk in his paths, and ultimately that he's going to settle any kind of disputes that arise even during this time. Now think of that. We have the purported United Nations, if you will, but they can't even be united for five minutes, can they? Everybody still has their own agenda, but here there's the only one agenda, and that's the agenda of Christ. Malachi 1.11 also says, the name of the Lord will be great from where the sun rises to where it sets, meaning every corner of the earth will recognize and honor Christ as king. They will bring incense, they'll bring offerings before him to honor his name, But the reason for it is because he is the king. Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 17. If you still have the book open, look with me there. It tells us that any of the Gentiles who didn't die when the nations went to war against Israel will do what? Well, they will come up year after year to worship Christ and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. But it also tells us that those who do not come to worship Christ at his holy mountain will suffer drought as a punishment from the Lord. And so there's some odd stuff going on here, isn't there? There's still, there's aspects in which you're starting to see full righteousness and peace and everything reign on earth, and yet they still are not fully submitted to Christ, are they? They're still going to suffer under a curse of some sense because they refuse to come to this place. But Micah in chapter 4 tells us again the result of Christ's rule. In 4 verses 3 through 4, he says that, All the nations are going to inevitably turn their weapons for war into utensils for farming, right? They won't even train for war anymore. And so again, peace prevails during this time. Joel 3, 16 through 17 tells us, the Lord will reign from his holy mountain. Strangers will no longer pass through, meaning there will not be a person who comes in to wage war and tear them apart or to kill them. They won't invade the land, in other words. Amos 9, again, speaks of a time where the hills literally drip with sweet wine and that whoever goes to harvest, they will collect so much they can't keep up with it, they'll have no more need to even plant fresh seeds. So in every aspect, there's going to be this incredible peace and prosperity in a material sense, but also this spiritual sense where there's just near unanimous worship of Christ in his mountain. But there will also be no fear during this time. 
Zechariah 8, verses 3 through 5 speaks of this. He says here, Men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, and the city will be filled with boys and girls that basically play without a care in the world. Can you think of any place on earth where you can do that? The simple reason for it is that God has promised to be faithful and righteous to them as their God, but also to dwell among them, to protect them. And that, beloved, is an incredible thing of beautiful, beautiful hope for these people. Remember, these guys are in the midst of judgment. They know the promises given to the patriarchs. They know the promises given to David, to the prophets. They know of one who is to come and set all things right. They know this one that is going to come is going to usher in peace in his reign and restore the people. But they also know he's going to vanquish every last enemy. There will be peace. There will be no more threat of judgment or invasion. Well, they look to this day with much, much hope because they picture it, if you will, as this day of divine reversal. There's this long series of events, if you will, that must take place for the renewal of all creation, for God's eternal kingdom to be brought into full. But what does it mean that the same thing that you and I hold on to, that God has not forsaken them? That yes, she will dwell in safety because her king is with her. We can't even imagine a world where sin and its effects are being slowly rolled back, can we? Imagine what it would be like for the Israelites who, who have watched their country just raped and pillaged and burned in every aspect over thousands of years to know that one day, even though their loved ones were killed, even though many were brought into slavery, even though everything was destroyed, that one day there would actually be peace. That God would actually be among them. A picture a day where old men and, and women can sit in the inner city streets of Chicago. Just think of that. Think of what it would be for a young boy and girl to go play in the inner city streets of Chicago or anywhere else where there's just violent crime. They would have no fear of gang activity. No one would have fear of being robbed. No one would fear sending their kids out to play unattended because nobody's going to get caught up in crossfire gang shots. That just wouldn't be a thing. In a sense, this is what Israel is being told in the midst of times of judgment. Your God one day will dwell among you. He will keep the peace fully and finally. No nation will come against you. They will not come to war with you on that great and final day. Your countrymen will not go into apostasy and rebellion and idolatry and everything that has characterized them for millennia. Old men and women and children alike, the most vulnerable members of your society will play uninhibited in the streets. The land will yield itself to you in ways that have not been seen since the garden. The nations will worship the king. You will not be a despised people. In fact, you will be a people that I lift up above the nations and they will flock to you. Remember, these are words of hope in judgment. At the same time, they're being told the Assyrians and the Babylonians and whomever else is going to come in and just ravage the land. But they have a hope that one final great day, the world as they know it, the world as we know it, 
will be done away with, but in all the right ways. Well, just like you and I are living under the constant strain and tension of sin, so too were these people. They're being called to repentance and faith. They're called to be enduring the judgment of God because they've earned it, right? They've gone full hook and sink into sin. But in the midst of all that, they're told that in light of the day to come where God sets and makes all things right, repent. Well, the sad reality that we've seen all through the minor prophets is that Israel just simply ignores that warning time and again, don't they? And so they fall under judgment after judgment of God. But what do the prophets all consistently do but point towards this day where that won't even be a thing? It will be no more. Think of Habakkuk, right? When I preach through Habakkuk, what is he doing? He's just complaining the whole time. But why? Because he's watching his country kill each other. And God says, I'm going to bring in the Babylonians to fix it. He goes, hold on, hold. No, 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 no. You can't do that. They're more wicked. He says, be amazed. Right? Be amazed at my arm of judgment. But then out of that, I'm going to accomplish the redemption and restoration of all things. There's just this incredible word of hope in the midst of days where it seems like everything is lost. They're being called to look to the day when Christ actually dwells among them and they will never again be rooted out of the land. They will never again be destroyed. There will be peace. There will be security. Worship will be on the earth like it has never been seen before. But beloved, even this is not the final hope of Israel. This isn't the end of the story, is it? Even during this time of the millennium, there are still people who will not fully yield themselves to the rule of Christ, right? There's still going to be a plague of drought for those who do not come to the mountain. There will still be death. There'll still be, in some sense, the presence of sin. They're going to be nearly extinguished during that time. But it is not enough that things are simply better, Things must be made new. No, things must be made new. So their ultimate hope is that the curse of sin, their enemy of Satan, and that great enemy of death will be no more. This is the final aspect of the hope of Israel, which is the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem or the new creation, if you will. Now we have to step outside of the minor prophets briefly If you can make your way to Isaiah 65 and 66, I'll show you a couple of verses here, but keep your finger in Zechariah. Now, much of what's described in these two chapters of Isaiah is simply what we've seen thus far today. So I would encourage you to read the full chapters at some point. But leading up to this whole point, Isaiah is describing, again, this time of judgment upon the nations, and these nations have come to war against Israel. And then he also depicts this salvation and restoration of Israel. He also describes these conditions we find during the millennium where there's this aspects of the curse are being lifted. Right? He talks about the fact that there just won't be a day where infants die. That just, that just won't be a thing. Old men will not fail to live out their years. One who dies at the age of 100 will be considered accursed. We think 100 is a pretty darn good age, right? Like most of us would dream to make it that long. But here he says, no, no, no. You will be considered cursed if you die at 100. 
Jerusalem, again, he describes this city as dwelling in complete safety. They will eat the fruit of their labors. They will actually enjoy it. And so people are not going to come in and just take it from them. The wolf and the lamb will eat together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The serpent will eat the dust. And there will be no harm nor destruction on all of God's holy mountain, he says. But again, all of this is leading up to the new creation. It's not the final day. And look at Isaiah 65, 17. He says, behold, I create what? New heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they even come to mind. Isn't that crazy? None of it will even be on your mind. He's speaking to the same thing we find in Revelation 21. John John sees a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. He says this new Jerusalem is going to be this major a thing in the new creation that's mentioned several times in the Minor Prophets. And so I'm just going to take you very loosely around. Again, you can refer to all these later, but Joel 3.17 tells us on that day he dwells in his holy mountain. Jerusalem itself will be holy, meaning they'll be set apart and consecrated, and no longer will strangers pass through them. Again, no one will come to war with them. They'll be set apart and holy. Zephaniah 3.14-17 through 17 speaks of this day as a day of great joy. Why? Because God has rolled back his judgments against them. Against Jerusalem, he has declared or cleared away all their enemies so they will no longer fear disaster. And the reason for this is that, again, Yahweh dwells among them. Micah 4, 6 through 8 speaks of this day. Again, the Lord reigns from Zion, and he says the former dominion of Jerusalem will come, meaning that Jerusalem is going to be the epicenter of God's eternal rule. Why? because Yahweh dwells among them. In the book of Zechariah, again, we find several mentions of God's favor and compassion being returned to Jerusalem. In chapter one, he talks about the city knowing no boundaries simply because of how God has richly blessed them. And again, in chapter two, he talks about the same reality. He says also that the nations will dwell in their midst and become God's people. And again, all of this is because God himself dwells among them. All of this testifies to the reality that there is something new here, something better here, that sin, Satan, and death have been vanquished. Zechariah 14, if you still have your finger there, look at verses 20 through 21. Again, in that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. The cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. So, beloved, everything will be holy to the Lord. Everything. They will not be a people who are referred to as Canaanites, or rather an unclean, unbelieving people. In the simplest of terms, Final judgment has taken place and everything has been renewed and recreated. And at this point, the stain of sin is no more. Everything is holy. Sin, death, Satan are no more. And that is the ultimate hope of Israel. Again, they they knew that all of these things were connected. They knew that the coming day of the Lord was connected to not only God's spiritual salvation of his people, right? But their physical deliverance, their physical salvation, but that this folds into Christ's millennial reign and that this folds into the new creation. 
Their hearts ached for these things because they knew that all of it, beloved, flowed into this eternal, unfading hope where sin, Satan, and death could no longer screw it up. They looked to the day where this curse would be lifted in full. And beloved, this is where our hope just simply unfolds before us as well, doesn't it? Again, if you still have your hand in Isaiah, look again to Isaiah 66. He says, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make will endure before me, declares Yahweh, and he's speaking to Israel here, so your offspring and your name will endure. A reminder of the Abrahamic promise, and it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, another way of saying for all eternity, that all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. And then look what he says. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. Why? For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an abhorrence or a hatred to all mankind. And we see also in in Revelation 21 that the Apostle John speaks of this. Right? All these things are cast into the lake of fire. There's going to be this new creation. There will be no more darkness And the reason, he says, is simply that the glory of God will be our light. All the nations will walk by this light. They will bring him honor and glory and praise. But the glory of God will literally flow from the new Jerusalem to such an extent it will make the sun and the moon unnecessary for light. There will be nothing unclean. No one who practices an abomination or one who has a lying tongue will ever enter into this place where God dwells among us, but only those names who are written in the book of life. In other words, again, sin and its effects will be decisively gone forever. No more unbelievers, no more disunity, no more life as we know it, but in all the right ways. There'll be no more tears, no more death, No mourning, no crying, not even pain. Why? For the first things have passed and all things new have come. Beloved, all things new. This was Israel's hope. Freedom from the curse, but more than this, their ultimate hope is bound up in the reality that God's good gift to all his children is where he will dwell among them in perfect unity and purity for eternity. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, or in other words, a new creation, all of it will be of immense beauty and joy that will never be dull to our eyes. Now think of just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life. Has it not grown dull? You could stand there for six hours on the most beautiful spot on all the earth, and eventually you'll get tired of it and you'll walk away. Never in the new creation. All of it will be beautiful. And it will never grow dull because it will testify to the glory of the king. Your hearts will never be dull to the blessings of God. And in turn, praise will never be dull on your lips. There will never be a point where praise is dull on your lips. 
Beloved, that's in a nutshell what I've been trying to show you through the Minor Prophets and, and at least much of them because our hope is bound up in the hope that flows to Israel in many ways. What I mean by that is simply that their hope folds into the hope of all the world. The hope that we have in the eternal kingdom of God. We know that when the day of the Lord comes, we will not be swept up in wrath. We will not be marked out like the unbeliever, but you and I simply won't go through the millennium like the Israelite will either. Or like whoever else lives during that time that is a Gentile. Right? We're told that in the New Testament over and again. First Thessalonians 4 tells us we're going to, when Christ descends from the heavens, we will be caught up in the air with those who are dead in Christ and put on immortality. We will be changed in a twinkling of an eye, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. We will no longer be subject to the curse of sin. Our bodies won't waste away. We will not sin. We will not flee from our Lord. We'll be present there, but that's not for us. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us we're going to judge between men and angels. And that's just a bewildering thing in my mind, but that's the reality of it. But throughout that time, we're still going to be waiting for that final day where the culmination of all these things leads to God's eternal kingdom, where the restoration of all things is finally completed, where we reign with Christ, both Jew and Gentile, forevermore. And beloved, that is something for us to yearn in or for, and something for us to hope in. Beloved, we should yearn to see the day when Christ returns because we know what all comes. We should yearn for that each and every day simply for the fact that each day is one day closer to his return. Think of just the reality of of what all this means for us. When we look to this day described throughout the prophets and, and made even more clear in the book of Revelation, it's a day where everything is new. Everything. It's not just re, you know, repurposed, repackaged, right? It's everything is new. Just try and wrap your mind around that. You can't, can you? You live in a world of death and disease and sickness and pain, where even the new things fall apart. Even the new car gets a dent on it a week later. Even your body is continually wasting away. Everything will be new, beloved. Everything, your heart, just let it contemplate the richness and the beauty of that. There will be nothing from this age you will miss. There will be nothing you regret or long for. You're not going to look back like Lot's wife in any sense. You will only have this eternal joy and perpetual delight in all that God has done and will do for all eternity. You're going to enter in the fullness of your relationship with your king. It'll be one of unimaginable unity and purity. Think of your best day. And be painfully honest. How many of you wish your best day was a bit better? I do. No longer will our hearts and minds and our affections be torn between the things of this age and the age that is to come. All of life will be one of pure worship. Pure worship. That's the constant drumbeat of hope throughout the prophets that they drive us to consider. And yet behind all of that is another drumbeat they ask us to consider, one that asks us, 
what is your true hope? What is your true hope? Is it in the age to come or is it in this age? The one that the scriptures say are fading so quickly and will be consumed, all of it in its entirety in fire and judgment and wrath. What's your hope? Is it Christ? What drives your heart to worship? What captivates you? Beloved, I mean this kindly, but some of you I know are just trying so hard to have one foot in both kingdoms. You're trying so hard to love the things of this earth, which you know are dying and fading away, and yet still trying so hard to love the things of heaven. You can't have both. One will be swept up and done away with utterly at the end of the age. And if you don't recognize that now, you will recognize it then. And that's not a threat. That's just me saying it will simply be a reality. There's, there's none of this stuff we will remember. Who cares if you lose it all now? Who cares? <sighs> what drives you to worship? The solution is always the same, beloved. It's always Christ. It is always Jesus Christ. We have one answer and one hope, and it is always Christ. And so as I wrap things up, I simply remind you one last time, especially if you are one who does not know Christ, to turn your affections and hope to this one who not only came his first time to die, in your place on the cross, if you would be a believer, but one who promises to come again and make all things new. Because the reality is that as the prophets have testified, he is sure to return. And there is much hope, but it is not your hope if you are not in Christ. But if you are in Christ, what a beautiful hope we have. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have given us such an incredible hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray that even now as we are wrapping up for today, that as we are tempted to go home and to forget these things, because we will, that you would put it upon our minds and hearts to remember them, to remember that not only on the good days, but the bad days, and even the mediocre days, that Christ is king, and that that kingship means something, that we will Submit ourselves to him in the here and now, or we shall bend the knee one great and final day. I pray for those who are not in Christ today, that you would crush them, in a sense, that you would afflict their hearts, that they would see you for who you are and come to worship our triune Lord. But that ultimately you would let that fold into much great hope and joy. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.